Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 24 In Which Mr. Osborne Takes Down the Family Bible Dobbin now hastened away to the city to perform the more difficult part of his task. He was nervous at the idea of facing old Osborne, and considered leaving the young ladies to tell the secret. But he had promised to report to George on how the elder Osborne bore the news, so going to the counting-house in Thames Street, he sent a note to Mr. Osborne begging for a half-hour's conversation about his son's affairs. This was accordingly arranged. The captain, expecting a painful and stormy interview, entered Mr. Osborne's offices with a dismal face. As he passed through the outer room, Mr. Chopper winked and nodded from his desk, saying, "'You'll find the governor all right,' with provoking good humour. Inside, Osborne rose, shook him heartily by the hand, and said, "'How do you do, my dear boy?' with a cordiality that made poor Dobbin feel doubly guilty. It was he who had brought back George to Amelia. It was he who had encouraged their marriage, and meanwhile George's father was patting him on the shoulder and calling him Dobbin, my dear boy. Osborne believed that Dobbin had come to announce his son's surrender. He had been talking over the likelihood of this with Mr. Chopper just before Dobbin arrived. Both had been expecting George's submission for some days. Oh, Lord, Chopper, what a marriage we'll have, huh? Mr. Osborne said to his clerk, jingling the guineas in his great pockets with triumph. With a knowing air, Osborne regarded Dobbin, seated blank and silent opposite him. What a bumpkin he is for an army captain, old Osborne thought. I wonder George hasn't taught him better manners. At last, Dobbin summoned courage to begin. Sir, I've brought you some very grave news. I have been at the horse guards this morning, and there's no doubt that our regiment will be ordered abroad before the week is over. And you know, sir, that we shan't be home again before a tussle which may be fatal to many of us. And the regiment will do its duty, sir, I dare say, said Osborne. The French are very strong, sir. Dobbin went on. The Russians and Austrians will be a long time bringing their troops down. We shall have the first of the fight, sir, and Boney will take care that it shall be a hard one. What are you driving at, Dobbin? Osborne said, with an uneasy scowl. I suppose no Briton's afraid of any damned Frenchman, eh? I only mean that before we go, if there are any differences between you and George— "'Well, it would be as well, sir, that you should shake hands. "'Should anything happen to him, I think you would never forgive yourself "'if you hadn't parted in charity.' "'As he said this, poor Dobbin blushed and felt himself a traitor. "'But for him, perhaps, this severance need never have taken place. 
he had brought about the marriage. And why? Because he loved Amelia so much that he could not bear to see her unhappy. "'You are a good fellow, William,' said Mr. Osborne, in a softened voice, "'and me and George shouldn't part in anger, that is true. "'Look here, I've, I've done as much for him as any father ever did. "'How I've toiled for him, I won't say. "'Well, I propose to him such a marriage as a nobleman might be proud of, "'the only thing in life I ever asked him, and he refuses me. "'Is the quarrel of my making?' What do I seek but is good? Nobody can say there's anything selfish in me. I say, here's my hand, and we'll forget and forgive. As for marrying, no, it's, it's out of the question. Let him and Miss Swartz make it up when he comes back a colonel, eh? For he shall be a colonel by God if money can do it. Come and dine in Russell Square today, both of you. You'll find a neck of venison and no questions asked. Every moment Osborne continued, Dobbin felt more and more guilty. "'Sir,' said he, "'I fear you deceive yourself. George is much too high-minded a man ever to marry for money. A threat on your part to disinherit him would only be followed by resistance on his. Why, hang it, man! <laughs> you don't call offering him ten thousand a year threatening him, hmm?' Mr. Osborne said, still with good humour. "'Good! If Miss Swartz will have me, I'm her man. I ain't particular.' And the old gentleman gave his coarse laugh. "'You forget, sir, previous engagements into which Captain Osborne has entered. What engagements? What the devil do you mean?' Mr. Osborne continued, with gathering wrath. "'You don't mean that he's still hankering after that swindling old bankrupt's daughter?' You've not come here to make me suppose that he wants to marry her. My son and heir marry a beggar girl out of the gutter. Oh, damn him, if he does, let him buy a broom and sweep a crossing. She was always dangling after him, and I've no doubt she was put on by her old shopper of a father. Mr. Sedley was your very good friend, sir, Dobbin interposed, almost pleased at finding himself growing angry. Time was you called him better names than rogue and swindler. The match was of your making. George had no right to play fast and loose. Fast and loose! howled out old Mr. Osborne. Fast and loose! Why, hang me, those are the very words he used himself. What? It's you have been setting him up, is it, Captain? It's you who wants to introduce beggars into my family. Well, thank you for nothing. Marry her, indeed. Why should he? I warrant you she'd go to him fast enough without marriage, sir, said Dobbin, starting up in undisguised anger. No man shall abuse that lady in my hearing. Oh, you're going to call me out, are you? Stop, let me ring the bell for pistols. Mr. George sent you here to insult his father, did he? Osborne said, pulling at the bell cord. Mr. Osborne said Dobbin, with a faltering voice. It's you who are insulting the best creature in the world. You had best spare her, sir, for she's your son's wife. And with this, feeling that he could say no more, Dobbin went away, Osborne sinking back in his chair with a wild look. 
The captain was scarcely out of the court when Mr. Chopper, the chief clerk, came rushing hatless after him. Oh, for God's sakes, Mr. Chopper said, the governor's in a fit. What has Mr. George been doing? He married Miss Sedley five days ago, Dobbin replied. I was his groomsman, Mr. Chopper, and you must be his friend. The old clerk shook his head. The governor will never forgive him. Dobbin begged Chopper to report any progress to him at his hotel and walked off moodily westwards, greatly perturbed. When the Russell Square family came to dinner that evening, they found the father of the house seated in his usual place, but with an air of gloom which kept the whole circle silent. The ladies, and Mr. Bullock, who dined with them, felt that Mr. Osborne had heard the news. Mr. Bullock was unusually bland and attentive to Miss Maria and her sister. Miss Wirt was alone on her side of the table, next to George's empty place. Nothing except Mr. Frederick's whispers and the clinking of plate and china interrupted the silence of the meal. The servants went about stealthily doing their duty. Mr. Osborne's share of the venison went away almost untasted, though he drank much, and the butler assiduously filled his glass. At last, at the end of dinner, his eyes fixed themselves upon the plate laid for George. He pointed to it with his left hand. His daughters looked at him and did not choose to comprehend the signal, nor did the servants at first understand it. "'Take that plate away!' he said at last, getting up with an oath and walking into his own room. Behind Mr. Osborne's dining-room was his study, which was sacred to the master of the house. Here he would pass a Sunday morning in his crimson leather chair, reading the paper. A couple of glazed bookcases were here, containing standard works and stout gilt bindings. No member of the family dared to touch the books, except upon those rare Sunday evenings when there was no dinner party. Then the great scarlet Bible and prayer book were taken out, and the servants being summoned, Osborne would read the evening service to his family in a loud, grating, pompous voice. No member of the household ever entered that room without a certain terror. Here... Osborne checked the housekeeper's accounts and overhauled the butler's cellar book. Four times a year, Miss Wirt entered this apartment to get her salary, and his daughters to receive their quarterly allowance. George, as a boy, had been horsewhipped in this room many times, his mother sitting sick on the stair, listening to the whip. The boy scarcely ever cried under the punishment. The poor woman used to kiss him secretly and give him money to soothe him when he came out. There was a picture of the family over the mantelpiece. George was on a pony, his elder sister holding a bunch of flowers, the younger led by her mother's hand, all with red cheeks and red mouths, simpering in the approved family portrait manner. The mother lay underground now, forgotten. The sisters and brother had a hundred interests of their own, and, though familiar, were utterly estranged from each other. To this study, old Osborne retired, greatly to the relief of the party whom he left. When the servants had withdrawn, they began to talk volubly, but very low. Then they went upstairs. 
Mr. Bullock accompanying them stealthily on his creaking shoes. He had no heart to sit alone so close to the terrible old gentleman in the study. An hour after dark, the butler ventured to tap at his door and take him in candles and tea. The master sat in his chair, pretending to read the paper, and when the servant left, Mr. Osborne got up and locked the door after him. In the large, shining mahogany writing desk, Mr. Osborne had a drawer devoted to his son's affairs. Here he kept George's prize copy-books and drawing-books, his first letters in large, round hands sending his love to papa and mamma and asking for a cake. His dear godpapa Sedley was more than once mentioned in them. Curses quivered on old Osborne's livid lips, and horrid disappointment writhed in his heart when he came upon that name. The letters were all labelled and tied with red tape. From Georgie, requesting five shillings, April 23rd, or Georgie about a pony, October 13th, and so forth. In another packet were George's tailor's bills, his letters from the West Indies, and the newspapers listing his commissions, and a locket containing his hair, which his mother used to wear. Turning one over after another, the unhappy man passed many hours. His dearest vanities, ambitious hopes, had all been here. What pride he had had in his boy. He was the handsomest child ever seen. A royal princess had noticed him and kissed him and asked his name in Kew Gardens. Anything that money could buy had been his son's. Had he ever refused a bill of George's? There they were, paid without a word. Many a general in the army couldn't ride the horses he had. He remembered George on a hundred different days when he used to come in after dinner as bold as a lord and drink from his father's glass, or on the pony at Brighton, when he cleared the hedge and kept up with the huntsman, the day when he was presented to the prince regent, and this. <sighs> this was the end of all, to marry a bankrupt and fly in the face of duty and fortune. What humiliation and fury, what sickening rage, bucket ambition and love, what outraged vanity, tenderness even, had this old man now to suffer. George's father took all of the documents out of the drawer in which he had kept them so long and locked them into a writing box, which he tied and sealed with his seal. Then he opened the bookcase and took down the great red Bible, shining all over with gold. It had a frontispiece representing Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Here Osborne had recorded on the flyleaf the dates of his marriage and his wife's death and the births and names of his children. Jane came first, then George Sedley Osborne, then Maria Francis. Taking a pen, he carefully obliterated George's name from the page. Then he took a document out of another drawer, where his own private papers were kept, and having read it, crumpled it up and lit it with one of the candles, he saw it burn away in the grate. 
it was his will. He sat down and wrote a letter, and rang for his servant, whom he ordered to deliver it in the morning. It was morning already, as he went up to bed. The whole house was alight with the sunshine, and the birds were singing among the fresh green leaves in Russell Square. Anxious to keep Mr. Osborne's family and dependents in good humour, and to make as many friends as possible for George, on returning to his inn, William Dobbin immediately wrote a hospitable invitation to Mr. Chopper, begging him to dine at the slaughters the next day. The invitation and Mr. Chopper's draft of his acceptance were shown to Mrs. Chopper that evening. They talked about it with great exultation and discussed the strange events in the Osborne family. Never had the clerk seen his employer so moved. After Captain Dobbin's departure, he had found his chief black in the face and all but in a fit. Chopper had been instructed to list all sums paid to Captain Osborne within the last three years. "'And a precious lot of money he has had, too,' the chief clerk said. The dispute was something about Miss Sedley. Mr. Chopper had no great regard for Miss Sedley. He respected the house of Osborne before all others, and hoped that Captain George would marry a nobleman's daughter.' The clerk slept a great deal sounder than his employer that night, and cuddling his children after breakfast, he set off in his best suit, promising his admiring wife not to drink too much of Captain Dobbin's port that evening. Mr. Osborne's face, when he arrived in the city, struck his clerks as peculiarly ghastly and worn. At twelve o'clock Mr. Higgs, his solicitor, called and was closeted with him for more than an hour. At about one, Mr. Chopper received a note brought by Captain Dobbin's man, and containing an enclosure for Mr. Osborne, which the clerk went in and delivered. A short time afterwards, Mr. Chopper and another clerk were summoned and requested to witness a paper. "'I've been making a new will,' Mr. Osborne said. No conversation passed. Mr. Higgs looked exceedingly grave as he came out, but there were no explanations. It was remarked that Mr. Osborne was surprisingly quiet and gentle all day. He called no man names and was not heard to swear once. He left work early and before going away asked his chief clerk, with some hesitation, if he knew whether Captain Dobbin was in town. Chopper said he believed he was. Indeed, both of them knew it perfectly. Osborne gave the clerk a letter, and requested him to deliver it into Mr. Dobbin's own hands immediately. "'And now, Chopper,' said he, with a strange look, "'my mind will be easy.' Then Mr. Frederick Bullock came in, and he and Mr. Osborne walked away together. The colonel of the regiment in which Dobbin and Osborne served was an old general who had made his first campaign under Wolfe at Quebec. He was too old and feeble for command, but he took some interest in the regiment of which he was the nominal head, and made certain young officers welcome at his table. Captain Dobbin was an especial favourite of this old general— Dobbin knew his military literature and could talk about past wars almost as well as the general himself. On this day, 
the general summoned Dauban to breakfast with him and informed him that a marching order to go to Belgium would come in a day or two, and they would leave before the week was over. The old general hoped that the regiment would prove itself worthy of its reputation on the battlegrounds of the Low Countries. And so, my good friend, said the general, taking a pinch of snuff with his trembling old hand, if you have any Phyllis to console or to bid farewell to papa and mamma, or any will to make, I recommend you to do it without delay. <laughs> he gave a good-natured nod of his powdered and pigtailed head. This news made Dobbin grave, and he thought of our friends at Brighton, and then felt ashamed that Amelia was always first in his thoughts before anybody, always at waking and sleeping, and indeed all day long. Returning to his hotel, he sent a brief note to old Mr. Osborne with this information, which might, he hoped, bring about a reconciliation with George. Dobbin was permitted to repeat the general's information to any officers of the regiment, so he told Ensign Stubble, whom he met at the outfitters, and who went off instantly to purchase a new sword. This young fellow, though only seventeen years of age and about sixty-five inches high, with a rickety constitution, had undoubted courage, and shouting, Ha, 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 and stamping his little feet with tremendous energy, he thrust the point at Captain Dobbin, who parried it laughingly with his walking stick. Mr. Stubble, as may be supposed from his size, was of the light bobs, Ensign Spoony, on the contrary, was a tall youth and belonged to Captain Dobbin's grenadier company. He tried on the new bearskin cap, under which he looked savage beyond his years. Then these two lads went off to the slaughters and sat down and wrote letters to the anxious parents at home. Letters full of love and heartiness and pluck and bad spelling. <laughs> oh, there were many anxious hearts beating through England at that time, and tears flowing in many homesteads. Seeing young Stubble writing at one of the coffee-room tables at the slaughters, and the tears trickling down his nose, for the youngster was thinking that he might never see his mamma again, Dobbin, who was going to write to George Osborne, relented. Why should I? said he. Let her have this night happy. I'll go and see my parents in the morning and go down to Brighton myself tomorrow. So he went up and laid his big hand on young Stubble's shoulder and told him if he would leave off brandy and water, he would be a good soldier, as he was a gentlemanly, good-hearted fellow. Young Stubble's eyes brightened up at this, for Dobbin was greatly respected in the regiment as the best officer and the cleverest man in it. Thank you, Dobbin, he said, rubbing his eyes with his knuckles. I was just, just telling her I would. And oh, sir, she's so damn kind to me. The two ensigns, the captain and Mr. Chopper, dined together. Chopper brought the letter from Mr. Osborne, in which the latter presented his compliments to Captain Dobbin, and requested him to forward the enclosed to Captain George Osborne. Chopper knew nothing further. He described Mr. Osborne's appearance and his interview with his lawyer, and, especially as the wine circled round, abounded in speculations. But, 
as these grew more vague with every glass, and at length became perfectly unintelligible, Captain Dobbin put his guest into a hackney coach in a hiccuping state, and swearing that he would be the captain's friend forever. <laughs> when Captain Dobbin left Miss Osborne, we have said that he asked permission to pay her another visit, and the spinster expected him the next day. Perhaps, had he come and asked her that question which he was prepared to answer, she would have declared herself as her brother's friend, and a reconciliation might have taken place between George and his angry father. But the captain never came. He had his own affairs to pursue, his parents to visit and console, and early in the day took his place on the lightning coach to go down to his friends at Brighton. Meanwhile, Miss Osborne heard her father give orders that that meddling scoundrel Captain Dobbin should never be admitted again, and any private hopes she may have indulged were abruptly brought to an end. As for her father, although he had said his mind would be easy, it did not seem to be so yet, and the events of the past two days had visibly shattered him. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.